we had briefly considered having an AGM slash ice cream social, but, yes. but October's a little bit late for the ice cream, we thought. No, Sarah says it's good. Maybe we'll dish out some ice cream still. Um, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. We are continuing to talk about who, what we, who we are and where we stand as a church and what we stand for. We're in the fourth week of our five, fourth week of our five fours, which eventually is going to become quite funny uh, for me to say. And today we get to talk about the redemption of the whole human person. So um, why are we doing this? Um, knowing who we are, uh, knowing what we stand for, knowing our ground gives us confidence, gives us the way uh, to know, gives us a place to stand, gives us a place to lean into. Uh, gives us a sense of, of what it is that matters to us. Um, for a long time, it seems to me, the church has been defined by what it is against, at least publicly, seen as, oh, you guys are against these things, and um, we don't do these things. And I, I want us to be known for the things that we are for. No, no, we care about these things. Uh, so that as you align with our church and uh, adopt, the, adopt this place as a church home, uh, you also are saying, I'm for these things. Uh, and we've talked about five of them. And so the first of them, of course, is that we are for the gospel and the word of God. We're a word of God-based church. The word of God frames and shapes all that we do. We are for the poor and needy, which has to do with being uh, self-aware of our need for God, but also radically generous because of how God has been generous to us. Uh, we are for, last week, the North Shore. And my slogan was that we are kingdom-minded but locally engaged. We're focused on what God is doing, but we're not uh, withdrawn from our local environment. Um, and then for the redemption of the whole human person and for the global mission of God. And today, we're talking about this business of redemption. Redemption of the whole human person, which might be kind of a strange phrase. And I hope by the end of today, you'll have a really a good sense of what it is I mean by it. Uh, but let me read to you the paragraph that's in our leadership agreement. The gospel is not merely words we believe, but a lived transformation. That transformation involves welcoming confused and world-formed sinners into the family of God and seeking his power and guidance in a journey towards Christ-likeness and holiness. This journey covers the whole of life, vocation, finances, family relationships, sexual relationships, our thought lives, our devotional lives, and so forth. Every one of us is on a journey. In fact, this is the conviction we have. We recognize that we are people on a journey of faith towards Christ-likeness together. That's what we are. We are journeying together toward Christ-likeness. It's not one person. It's not just individuals. It's a group doing it. Uh, no one has arrived yet. Uh, nobody's succeeded. Like, you know, Christ-likeness, you can mark the badge off and wear the special pin in church and everyone knows you've made it, right? That's not about it. We're on a journey and a constant journey, and we're at different stages of that journey. And so redemption of the whole human person is tied to this journey towards Christ-likeness. Now, I want to begin today by talking at length about one particular passage of Scripture, and then I'll make some comments about how this ties us to this business of redemption. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. It's a passage that you may be familiar with um, for a number of reasons. Now, Matthew, before I read it, Matthew is a master editor. Uh, you guys remember that Jesus didn't write any books. The Gospels are books written about Jesus by people who edited together the content of his life. And Matthew was a genius editor. He really knew how to put things together, to make one episode comment on another and draw things together. And we see this here today because today's story covers the healing of the paralytic, which you know, I hope, the calling of Matthew the tax collector, and then this teaching about wine and wineskins. And in Matthew's working, I think all three things come together. 
So let me read it for you now, and then I'm going to talk through each section in turn. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along on the screen if you don't have a paper Bible. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you looking, thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new, put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of our Lord. Okay. So uh, I'm going to take each part of the story in turn. Let's look at the story of the healing of the paralytic first. Um, now, we have it in multiple accounts. We have it in Matthew, and we have it in Mark. Matthew's version is a little trim. There's some more details in Mark about how this is going. We've got this guy with a broken body. He's paralyzed. Uh, we don't know how he got paralyzed. Even today, we struggle to heal spinal neurological injuries, don't we? And back then, the guy's stuffed. There's absolutely no hope for him uh, to be uh, healed by any kind of medical means. Uh, he's got some friends. We know that from Mark. He's got friends. Uh, and they show up in Capernaum. And it looks like they might be in Jesus' house. Like it looks like it's his house, which is one of the reasons... Anyway, this is what stuff. We learned in Mark uh, that the guys, uh, there's no room to get around Jesus, and so they climb onto the roof, and then they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower the guy down by ropes. Do you ever wondered if that's how he got paralyzed in the first place? <laughs> like these friends may feel responsible for this, and now they're trying to fix the problem. I don't know. It's speculation. Um, so one of the reasons we can think maybe this is Jesus' house is because why doesn't the homeowner speak up about someone destroying his roof? But if it's Jesus' house, he's not concerned about the building. Uh, it's also speculation, but I think it's an interesting thing. So they show up. Um, the guy descends in front of Jesus, and Jesus sees the guy and sees his paralysis and responds in a kind of surprising way. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. I bet that was unexpected for everyone in the room. 
No one was sitting there thinking. I'm sure the paralyzed guy was thinking, thanks, that's really what I needed. I could like to walk now, <laughs> right? Uh, that, um, it seems like a misdiagnosis, not the healing they were looking for. Now, the listeners in the room, here it's a group of scribes, they freak out. Blasphemy! Uh, in Mark, uh, they ask the question explicitly, who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, let's say I, uh, let's say I, I'm sorry, I'll talk to, I've got Dr. Sataki here and his son. I'll use, I'll use Kirsty. okay, both of you, okay. <laughs> I'll leave the son alone. So they're over here. Uh, uh, Ken, no, let's, let's Kirsty. Kirsty leans over and punches Ken in the face, all right? Unlikely action, right? Absolutely smacks him one. He's bruised and bleeding. And then I say to Kirsty, I forgive you. How can I forgive her for something she did to somebody else? Does that make sense? How can Jesus forgive someone else's sins? It doesn't make sense, does it? Now, beyond that, I mean, there's one thing. We sin one way and we, we hurt other people, but in a real way we sin and we've violated something between us and God. There's a broken relationship between us and the Almighty. Who has the authority to forgive that sins except the one who's been wronged? God's the one who's really wronged. And so if Jesus forgives the man's sins, who is Jesus? It gets really challenging, doesn't it? And so I think the Pharisees are right to think blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. It's the right response. Remember, the Pharisees aren't always wrong. They just draw some of the wrong conclusions. Okay? They move in the wrong place. All right. Jesus turns back to the scribes, and then this is the greatest question in the Bible. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Um, neither. They're both impossible, aren't they? And he says, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic, and in the simplest way, he says, get up, take your mat, go home. And the guy leaps up and goes home. Now, that is amazing. There's more than one miracle. More than one miracle. First, of course, is the miracle of healing. Um, if we were going to heal a paralyzed guy, let's, th let's break this down. First, a whole team of neurosurgeons would be involved, right? Uh, surgeons and nurses. Uh, there would be a team of uh, physical therapists helping him to learn how to walk again because, of course, your muscles have atrophied in the process and you've lost your equilibrium. You don't remember how to do these things. Uh, there'd be a group of occupational therapists helping him to work out how do you live your life while you're learning how to move again. And on top of that, there'd probably be counselors helping him to deal with the grief and trauma of how he's experienced these things. Jesus does all of it at once. This is way beyond any kind of medical miracle. He does this stuff. It's remarkable to think about the power of this healing. But the second miracle, of course, is the miracle of forgiveness. If Jesus can bring about the impossible by healing a man with a word, then he also has power to forgive sins. And if only God can forgive sins and Jesus can raise them, the conclusions are pretty alarming for people in the room. Who is this one that has authority to do these things? And it's pregnant with the expectation that God is among us. Let's move to the next story in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's call. Now, Matthew, uh, the author of the gospel, we believe, is this tax collector. And um, he's sitting on the side of the road doing his business, and uh, Jesus calls him, and he leaves everything and walks him behind. Maybe that doesn't seem so bad. Some of you are government employees, and you think that's fine. But let's talk about the Roman taxation system for a moment. I've told you before, the Romans were clever administrators, and they were clever in this way, too. So here's how the Romans, they did tax farming, right? And so here's what the Romans would do. They'd set up, uh, they'd, they'd set up a district, 
And then they'd estimate how much tax they could get from that district. Let's say, I bet I could get $8 million from this district in tax, right? Okay. And then what they do is they say, all right, who wants the job? And a person who has $8 million bids for it and gets the job. And now they, as a tax collector, collect the money back from the people around them. But the deal is they can take more than they gave. So what you do is you have money, and you use your money to rob the people who are your neighbors. Does this make you popular <laughs> with the neighbors? If you are an oppressed Jewish person living in the city, the tax collectors are collaborators with the oppressors. Matthew's not getting invited to dinner. Matthew's not welcome in people's homes. I mean, there's like ordinary sinners who are ordinary people who do things who are just unclean, and Matthew's like the dirtiest of the dirty. He's the worst of the worst. We hate him. And here's Jesus walking along and saying, you, come. And the guy stands up and walks away from it. I mean, some of you have thought about walking away from your life and job and career. <laughs> You've considered it. You've not done it until Jesus walks up and says, it's time. And we get up and hoof it. Unbelievable. So this is the second miracle that Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. And they go to dinner, and Matthew's friends, his tax collector friends, because when you're a tax collector, all you have is tax collector friends. And since no one wants to be around you, you've got prostitutes as friends. And this is it. And he's got these people around him. And the Pharisees show up. They pop up around Jesus all the time, and they start asking, why is the teacher eating with these people? Again, it's a good question. It's just out of place. It's a good question. It's out of place. The sharing table fellowship is a big deal. It shows a kind of acceptance. Is Jesus saying, this is okay? Is the teacher giving sanction to this kind of behavior? It seems alarming, and I think uh, their question is justifiable. Uh, and Jesus' answer, verses 12 and 13, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I'm not as interested in your religious rules. I want a change of heart. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we said this um, two weeks ago on the poor and needy. We recognized that we are all in need of God. This is the grounding of our faith, recognizing this, this baseline requirement that we all desperately need God. We're all sinners. None of us have it together. We're going to come back to this in a moment. So I want to move into the third portion of Scripture in a moment, but I just want to pause to note the similarities between the healing of the paralytic and the calling of Matthew. The paralytic is cleansed from his sin and then is physically healed. Matthew is called out of his sin and then granted fellowship with Jesus. Both of these stories are dealing quite strongly with matters of sin and restoration. And this brings us to the third part of the story, this teaching on wine and wineskins. So um, right on the heels of the Pharisees, uh, Jesus' dining habits appear to bother not only his opponents, the Pharisees, but also his friends, John and his disciples. These are the guys, they're peers. They, they like Jesus. They want things, and so they're bothered too. And they come up with this question, hey, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I'm kind of hungry. Jesus, why are you having fun? You appear to be enjoying yourself too much, Jesus to be doing the job we have in store for you. Uh, there's always killjoys in every fellowship, aren't there? People who don't want this stuff. And I think, I think there's, a little, there's a little bitterness coming out of this. And Jesus' answer is this cultural answer. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. It's a wedding feast. There are times to celebrate. These people are getting new life. We should be celebrating. It's a time for rejoicing. It's a time for being up, upright. There's going to be other times when we mourn. That's coming later. But now's the time for joy. And now he gives some interesting answers. 
He talks about the patch. Now, um, maybe you've heard this before. The, 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 the chemistry of the physics of this is pretty simple. Uh, you wear your clothes, you put them in the wash, they get dry, and what happens? They shrink. Not a lot nowadays, uh, but they shrink. The fabric changes. Okay? If you get a hole in your clothing, you tear something, and you put a patch on it, but the patch isn't shrunk, when you put that in the wash, the patch will shrink too and tear the clothing further. Okay? This is basic, like, I don't know, this is like home economics, ancient home economics 101. Then he talks about the wineskins. When you put, uh, you use a new wineskin, it's got flexibility, it can stretch. And when you make wine, wine has off-gassing, and the off-gassing causes the, the wineskin to stretch. And so the first time you pour new wine into a new wineskin, it can stretch sufficiently. But if you do it a second time, it's already maxed out, and the off-gassing will expand and cause the wineskin to burst. So uh, he's given us these two teachings. Now, what's going on? In my life, I've heard a lot of interpretations of these passages. And I almost, I was almost never quite satisfied. Usually, it was someone like on a vision time, and they were talking kind of like shadily about people who didn't agree with them. And it was like, well, we've got new plans, and some of you are old wineskins, and um, you know, you're going to get burst in the process, and that's okay, <laughs> right? And it's, it's a kind of funny thing. But I think, I think, and I'm convinced that Jesus is talking about the paralytic and about Matthew in the patch in the new wineskin. So let me see if I can show you what I mean. Okay? If I heal the body of the paralytic without healing the sin, I've put a new patch on an old garment. Sin will tear him apart again. He needs the deeper healing of his heart being made right. Then he can receive a new body. The patch is the life of the paralytic. Right? And Matthew doesn't just need new wine. He needs a new life. He doesn't just need a new job. He needs something. He doesn't need a change from his sin. He needs something completely new. He needs a new wineskin in which to put the life that Jesus is giving him. These two stories are about these two people. So I think this is a pretty powerful passage, and we get to ask, how do we participate in this redemption? Um, the ministry of Jesus uh, gives us our model and I want to say a couple things in summary of this that help us to think about this. So number one, hopefully you all know this, Jesus Christ forgives sins. Jesus Christ forgives sins. Uh, he forgives through divine fiat, right? Son, your sins are forgiven. It's done. He makes it happen, right? He does it through extending relationship. Come, follow me. Come be in my presence. Come learn who I am. Um, and so sometimes this is this fiat of forgiveness, and sometimes it's this growth into the knowledge of forgiveness. And God invites men and women and children into a relationship with him that covers our sinfulness. And I think each one of us is either a paralytic or Matthew. Let me tell you what I mean. Some of you are caught up in sins that you didn't perform. Things have happened to you. Things have happened around you, and you are just paralyzed in the midst of stuff that other people have done to you. And you need a divine fiat to get you out of it. And some of you, like Matthew, have committed sins on purpose. And you've chosen a life, and now you're stuck in it, and you're miserable, and you're alone, and you're unhappy, and you also need Jesus to call you out of it. And whether you're stuck in it or whether you've chosen it, it doesn't really matter, does it? We need help. We need 
a rescuer. So what is sin? It's a kind of maybe not the most popular concept these days. Well, the old word means kind of falling short. It means having an aim but not getting close to it. We've got an understanding right now of God's perfection, right? We understand that he's perfect and holy and all wise and all good and that we are short of that. We don't meet up to it. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I'm going to ask my son Moses to come and give me a help for a second. He gets to come. Moses, I've, we've got this um, Nerf bow, all right? No, come on, bring me both. Bring me both. No, bring me the other one too. Okay. So first test, first, hang on, first test. Moses, will you confirm for everyone that this arrow is nerfy? Yes. Okay. So it's not going to, it's not going to, okay. Okay. We stay here. I'm going to ask your help. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to aim for the clock and let's see how this goes for a minute. Moses, you're going to get the arrow. Okay. So, um, the image of the sin is to fall short. It's you shot an arrow and you missed the target, okay? Uh, and I'm going to sit here, I'm going to aim, and if I hit Bob Cruz on the head, I'm really sorry, Bob. Okay, all right? So, um, oh, no, that's terrible timing. Okay, all right, so if I aim for the clock, ooh, it was close, but I fell short, okay? And that's part of it, but the other part... <laughs> You could take this no. with you. <laughs> if you're listening on the tape, I just shot my son with an arrow. Um, folks, here's the deal about sin. There's parts of us that is weak. We fall short by our strength. We don't have the strength to do it. But with the strength we have, we hurt the people near us. It's not just that you don't have it. That's part of sin. The other part is the power you do have. You've been wicked. It doesn't matter how you got in the position. You need help to get out of it. How do we get out from under sin? Not on your own. You can't fix it. You don't have strength. All your efforts only make the problems worse can't do it. You need someone else's help. Like the paralytic, we have no power to make it right. Like Matthew, we're trapped and isolated and alone and have no strength to fix it. So Jesus makes it possible through his redeeming work. Redemption. It's an economic image. He bought you. He purchased you. He spent money for you. And we've got two scriptures right now I will look at briefly. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. He bought you. He redeemed you. Revelation 5, 9, this is the song in heaven going on. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tongue and tribe and nation. He gave his life to purchase you, redeemed you like a pretty awesome coupon. And now you belong to him.
He paid the debt for your sin with his own life, and he made a way for us to be made right with God. And we believe in this redeeming work of Jesus, and that means that we are for the people who need redemption. We need it. We've received it. The people we know need it and also need to receive it. That's everyone. And that's basically every single person who comes through our door. So whoever broken you are, whoever sick you are, whoever lonely you are, however twisted you are, however good you are, however poor you are, however wealthy you are, however miserable or depressed or troubled you are, however mentally struggling you are, however damaged you are, whatever's happened to you, whatever's gone on in your life, whatever circumstances you've experienced, the redeeming power of Jesus is available for you. And we are for those people who are on that journey of redemption, which includes each and every one of us. If that's you today, if you've never today received, if you've never till today received the redeeming work of Jesus, then don't wait. So now is as great a moment as any to say, okay, I want it. I want to be redeemed. I'm messed up and I'm broken and I need help. Jesus, help. And he will answer you. But we are not just for this initial redeeming act. Um, there's more to the story. We want everyone to know the power of Jesus, but meeting him is just the beginning of our spiritual lives. We're filling in, here's the next thing. Being redeemed by Jesus means beginning a journey of transformation. Being redeemed by Jesus means beginning a journey of transformation. God loves sinners. Isn't that nice? Not just nice. Isn't that good and wholesome and right and wonderful? He's made a way for sinners like us to enter into fellowship with him scandalously so that people who are all happy and upright, they're like, why are you crazy people in the company of Jesus? And we're like, well, that's what he does. He's not, he came to heal the sick. He came as a physician. He wants people who know they need him. But the thing is, God never leaves us alone. He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. It's not that you're redeemed and you get to go on being the same person you were. There is transformation that comes. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus heals the sick and transforms people. He heals the sick and he transforms people. And he, I believe he wants to heal you. I believe that. Now, I believe it a couple ways. I believe in the physical healing power of Jesus Christ. I believe he heals the sick today. I believe the deaf can hear and the blind can see and the lame can walk. I believe all these things, okay? Uh, but he wants, maybe put it back into the patch and things. He wants to give you, um, he wants to give you new trousers, <laughs> right? Not just a patch on the garment. He wants to give you a new garment. Some of you, he was going to give the new garment to now. Some of you aren't going to get the new garment till later. And that's up to him, and that's okay. It's for his own good purposes that he does these things, and sometimes he doesn't. But... If you are in need of healing, and if you are aware of, of illness in your body, come and receive prayer. Receive prayer through the power of God's Spirit, and let him encounter you in those things. But I said the second thing he does is he transforms people. Uh, and this transformation it depends upon redemption. He's going to redeem you in order to begin this journey of transformation. Romans 12.1 is my favorite passage about these things. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, reasonable, it should say, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So once again, Jesus accepts the acceptance letters, the, the qualifications for acceptance to the kingdom are astonishingly low, right? It's unbelievably low. He lets people like me in, right? And from there, we begin this journey, and we move on. Now, some of you have to leave the mat of your sin behind, right? You have to stand up and leave behind your illness, and the illness is gone. And some of you have to walk away from your tax collector's booths. Have you ever wondered why it was that Matthew, we've got all these disciples, why is Judas in charge of the money? Don't you think Matthew would be the best accountant for the disciples? But maybe in leaving that behind and following Jesus, he had to say, no, no more money for me. And some of you in following Jesus have to leave some things behind, and it's hard. You have to leave some relationships behind. You have to leave some choices behind. You have to leave some practices behind. You have to leave some things behind that have become your entire identity. You've got to walk away from them. You know, you walk away from them because Jesus says, follow me, not because I say, I want you to walk away from it. But we're on this journey towards Jesus together. So here's what we're for, church. We are for the following things, the redeeming work of Christ, for the healing of the physical body, and for the journey of transformation. And practically, I want to talk about very, three very brief ways that we can do this together. Okay? Uh, one of the ways we are for this journey together is simply through community. The journey of redemption is a communal journey. We walk this journey together. If you're starting to feel alone in this, then something's wrong. Now, part of this is iron sharpening iron, right? We press into each other. We drive each other to be faithful. Part of this is truth speaking. Part of this is coming alongside and lifting you up when you're feeling weak, right? We are carrying, what is I'm going to quote you two? We carry each other, carry each other. The best song you two ever wrote, one, right? Go listen this afternoon if you're not listening in your head right now. Redemption is a long journey. We've got to walk it together. Second thing we can do is patience for transformation, um, I'm going to say patience in two ways. Some of you are impatient for your own transformation. Shouldn't I be better by now? Shouldn't it be easier by now? Shouldn't I be kinder by now? <sighs> right? You need patience. Patience. Not just with yourself, but we have to be patient with each other. That's even harder, isn't it? Because people around us are irritating. Uh, there's a pastor of Bethel, Bill Johnson. I don't always, um, I don't listen to him often, but I remember one sermon illustration I've heard from, I think, one sermon I listened to that stuck with me. And that's this. He says, when, when a child is learning to walk and the child falls down, we don't discipline the child for falling. We cheer the steps they made and say, let's try again next time. That's the patience of community, isn't it? When your brother or sister falls and stumbles... Say, okay, you made it so far. Let's get up and try again. Patience and transformation. And third and finally, there's power. Transformation is not up to us. It's the power of God's Holy Spirit working in us. He fills us with new life and new wine so that we can be made into the people he wants us to be. And if this journey of transformation happens apart from the power of Jesus, it's going to go wrong. And so we surrender to his power and to his authority and to his ability 
to make us new. I want to invite our worshipers to come back to the platform uh, to lead us in a time of response. Uh, we have these moments right now. This is great. We've got time to worship, to sing, to exalt Jesus, uh, to lift up our hearts to him. We have time for prayer. If you need prayer, uh, now is your moment. Who do I have this morning? Janice and Val. Yes? Did I lose you? Some of you are in, some of you are in the choir. This is going to be hard to pray. Oh, we've got Anne. Okay. It's good. If you're on the prayer team, I'm going to call you to pray because I have the wrong names on my sheet, and that's just fine. Um, go for prayer. Seek prayer. Seek the Spirit of Jesus. And if you are sick, and if you are sin sick, and if you need healing or anything, come to receive the power of Jesus today. May I invite you to stand.